studying the book of Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll give you a Bible. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible. Just make that a gift from the Lord to you today as well. Make a friend of that Bible. It will change everything in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll pick things up in verse 9, even though I know we covered these next three verses uh, last week. We'll look in earnest starting in verse 12. I want to have some of you relax. Any movement backwards, we go so slowly through anything, it can alarm you uh, to think that we're not making more aggressive progress. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, Paul writes. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned... He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. You smell like a chimney forever. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Wow, what does that mean? For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And therefore, let no one boast in men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you for what it reveals to us about you, and we want you to know we are thankful for every revelation you have given of yourself in this word this Bible. And Lord, we thank you so much that this passage is also something intended to equip us to fully experience the Christian life that you have borne us into as Christians. And we pray, Lord, that today our time in your word would accomplish that purpose in our lives as well. Not a single one of us wants to miss one single small thing that is ours, Lord, in this life because of Jesus' sacrifice and because of our faith in Him. So continue to teach us now that we might appropriate all of it 
enjoy all of it, Lord, and give you blessing and praise for all of it. And we ask these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul reminds his readers, and he also reminds us, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is communicating, in other words, that when he came to the city of Corinth, there's no church there. There were no Christians there. And he comes in cold, and he begins to preach the gospel. He begins to preach Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection and the need for us to put our faith in him for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And as he preached that simple but powerful gospel to people, people listened to that message, and the Holy Spirit bore witness to that message, and they were born again by the Holy Spirit. And he became, Jesus then became the foundation of their lives, the foundation for the forgiveness of their sins and of their salvation. Because Jesus alone is the foundation of Christianity. He is the lone source of salvation. And then once people had trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, he also then began to disciple them in how to fully experience and enjoy their new personal relationship with the Lord. And again, in order for Christians to do that, Jesus, Paul made Jesus the single great focus of that church. When that church started, it was all about Christ. It was all about Jesus. And the Lord used not only Paul, but Apollos and the apostle Peter to establish a church like that in Corinth, all about Christ. They were saved through faith in Christ. They were growing in a relationship with Jesus. Everything was so simple and everything was so pure. And then over time, God takes Paul and he takes Apollos and he takes Peter because he had a broader call upon their lives into other parts of the world to establish churches there, to do in other places what he had done in Corinth. And new leadership established itself in the church at Corinth. Weak leadership. Leadership that allowed that church to go from something that was completely about exalting Christ and loving Him, growing in our relationship with Him, to now becoming about man and about men and about leaders and about who is our favorite and who isn't our favorite. And I don't care how great a man is whether it's Apollos or whether it's the Apostle Peter or whether it's the Apostle Paul, to have the attention of a local church taken off of Christ and put on any man is to fall down a step that is bigger than anyone could ever put into words. And so their focus has now been moved off of Christ and on to people, and they've broken up into these little parties. And the result at the church of Corinth was that it became a very, very carnal, divided church, and it was filled with conflict. And so the apostle in our passage this morning, he attempts to rectify this by telling them that 
a life that is built upon the foundation of Christ will, number one, be a life of service. Number two, it will be a life that will not defile or do damage to the temple of God. And number three, it will not identify solely with any one part of the body of Christ, but will identify with the whole body of Christ, just as Jesus did and just as Jesus does. And so first point here is that when a life is built upon the foundation of Jesus, it will result in a life of service. And he speaks of this in verses 12 through 15. Christian service provides a tremendous... You say, why would Paul bring up Christian service in this part of the letter? Because Christian service provides a tremendous protection in our lives from ever becoming carnal Christians. And Christian service is an important means by which those who are are carnal Christians and want to move out of carnality, being dominated by their selfishness, dominated by their self-will, dominated by their own wisdom, and to really enter into what Christianity is all about. And the best way to do that, one of the best ways to do that, is to begin to serve the Lord. And one of the great things about Christian service is that it keeps us wonderfully busy in a holy direction. I'll tell you, idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And that's the truth. It's true in Christians. It's true in non-Christians. The Bible teaches that every one of us is Christians. God has called us into a particular area of service. There is something that He has called us to in order that through our lives it will mean the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world and the strengthening of the kingdom of God. That's a call that God puts upon every one of of our lives. And if a person ignores God's call upon their life or ignores this thing called Christian service in our Christian life, then the time that God intends for us or intended for us to be pouring into Christian service in our lives, if it's not being, that time isn't being directed toward that, then that time becomes idle time for us. We will spend it somewhere other than where God knows is best for us to spend it. And we will typically spend it in some kind of a carnal or a fleshly way. And so Christian service is tremendous in that it keeps us busy about holy things. It keeps our life very, very well directed. And it keeps a lot of us out of trouble. I don't think that I'm a pastor because I'm anything great. I know just the exact opposite of true. God looked at me and said, we have to keep this man extraordinarily busy. And so he called me into this, and then he has the grace to be successful to some degree related to that. But I'll tell you, Christian service has kept me out of all kinds of trouble. Because if I took the time that I spend in what God has called me to do and I, it became self-directed, oh boy, you wouldn't want to see the person that would result. Another great thing about Christian service is that it forces us to grow spiritually in a way we would never force ourselves. 
but Christian service will do that. I've mentioned, I think, recently, and in fact, I'm sure recently, the example by Jill Morgan, who was a daughter-in-law of G. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century. And she wrote of her father-in-law, who taught on Sundays, but he also had a Friday night uh, Bible study that he taught at the tabernacle that he pastored in uh, London. And it was kind of a a little bit of a more academic kind of teaching that he did there, but the people came out in droves, even on a Friday night in London. The place was always full, and she wrote of her father-in-law that the students had no idea that the teacher was just one step ahead of them. And that's the way that's not only true of Bible teaching, but it's true of all Christian service. When God begins to use us, whatever the gifting might be or the calling might be, our life then becomes influential in other people's lives or people will begin to uh, look to us in a certain way related to the things of the Lord. And when that begins to happen in our life, it isn't just me, you know, checking out and going crazy for 24 hours or 48 hours in the flesh or whatever. There's the realization that, hey, God is using me, and God has a call on my life, and if I just go and do something nutty, it's going to affect a lot of people. And so it forces us to mature just to stay sometimes one step ahead or equal with the people that we're trying to minister to. And that's a very, very good thing. It forces us to grow up, and and that is a good thing. And it Christian service will not allow us the so-called luxury of settling into just kind of a small, petty, lukewarm Christianity. Now, I'm going to offend some of you right now, so I just want you to know that I'm going to do it, but I don't mean to be harsh about it. You show me a Christian that has been a Christian any length of time, and they have not yet taken the time to discover what God's call is upon their life and are not engaged in that call. I've seen it over and over and over again in the 30-plus years that I've walked with the Lord What you end up with is a Christian who is absolutely on their way to heaven, but they are such, their life becomes so small, so petty, so little, so nothing, nothing. What gives our life significance, the big thing that happens through our lives, is what happens related to the kingdom of God. It's what brings significance to our life. It's what brings true meaning to our life. It's what keeps us from getting, as we grow older, from getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until our world is as small as as we're about to depart as it was when we were a brand new baby. That whole cycle that can go on. And Christian service keeps us from going into that place. And, and so, and all of us would go there without serving the Lord. It forces us to grow in a way that we will never force ourselves. And it's one of the benefits of, of Christian ministry. I want you to notice that each one of us, verse 12, as Christians is building on Christ's foundation in our lives. In other words, Paul is telling the church at Corinth and us 
That Christianity doesn't end with the fire insurance. It doesn't just end with the fact that we've been saved and now we have the confidence that we're going to be in heaven one day and not going to end up in a lake of fire, uh, you know, bearing the judgment that our sin deserves. And But the Christian, the Christian life is one where we are saved. Jesus becomes the, sal- the foundation of my salvation. But Christianity is also a call to grow in my relationship with God between now and heaven, to grow in Christ-likeness, in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our motives, in our speaking, in our doing. Jesus said concerning himself, he said, uh, the Son of Man has not come into the world in order to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No Christian is living the Christian life, the Christ-like life, who is not involved in Christian service, in giving our life away in some way of God's choosing and his calling for the expansion of the kingdom of God. I cannot ever enter into the depth of relationship with God that God has planned for me. I cannot enter into the depth of intimacy and relationship with Jesus independent of service because he was the supreme servant. I can never ever, no Christian can ever become Christ-like apart from Christian service because he came not to be served but to serve. Now, this may be very, very basic for many Christians in this room, but there's another group of Christians in this room and within the voice of wherever this sermon might go or this passage might go for whom it is a brand new revelation that Christianity is not just fire insurance And it's not just, I trust in Jesus in order to get saved. I'm on my way to heaven, and now I can take my life to myself and live any old life that I want. Or that he has a plan that's attached to my life. Or I can disregard that plan. And it's a sobering thing because so many people in Corinth felt the freedom to do that, that you end up with a church that's about to blow up in a hundred different ways and in a hundred different directions. And sometimes people don't even know that because we don't know the Bible like past generations have known or sometimes a person is relatively new to the Lord and it's good to realize that this isn't just about me getting saved and then remaining I, me, and my selfish for the rest of my Christian life, but it's about me getting saved and then as a part of my new life serving Him and serving other people in serving him for the expansion of the kingdom. And that's something that's important for every single person to realize. Notice this repeated phrase in our passage, and it's repeated twice in verse 13 where Paul writes, each one's work, and he repeats it, each one's work, and we notice that word work. In verse 14, if anyone's work. In verse 15, if anyone's work. And it's reinforcing to us the fact that every Christian is called to Christian service of some kind. It can be Bible teaching. 
It can, God calls some to be elders or to be deacons within a local church. That's a calling that he puts on people's lives or to be a board member or something like that. You might have the gift of mercy where God has given you a supernatural deep love and compassion and understanding for hurting people. And that gift upon your life, God can direct you in a lot of ways. Someone with a gift of mercy may be directed by God to become a part of the chaplaincy program here in town or to become a a part of Modesto Pregnancy Center and and what's going on there or to become a, a volunteer at one of the hospitals in our community. Someone with this gift is going to look and say, point me in the direction where... Hurting people are clustering. Where are they gathering? Where are people in need of God's mercy flowing through my life into their life? Where is that happening? And then God's going to put you in contact with that. Any of those ministries that I mentioned are, are great for that. But you think about a hosp- hospitals. Does, I mean, does a hospital experience that you, I don't care if you're the head of a Fortune 500 company, or you're a nobody like me, you still got to wear that gown. And you still can't sleep at night. And you still don't know what the results of the tests are. And you still have trouble getting that doctor in there. And when's he going to get here? All these things that happen in our lives. And you get that place where you walk into a hospital, everything changes, everything's up in the air, no matter what kind of a dynamo you are in the business world or in whatever realm of you have in terms of influence. When we find ourselves in that kind of a place, we're in need of mercy. We're in need of a contact uh, with God. And a gift of mercy will do that. These kind of things are sometimes just sitting under our nose all over the place, and we don't even realize God has a spiritual gift and a calling to put us into contact with that kind of a need. It isn't not all ministry occurs within the perimeters of the property of a church. A person can be a mother or a father, and they're right now what the big thing God has got you doing is raising your child or children in the nurture of the admonition of the Lord. He can call one person over here to do that and then have them also be doing something else for you and what he knows you are and those children and the needs and the whole big picture that only he sees. He may say, listen, in terms of what I want you doing right now is to do that. Take care of those three children or that one child that seems like three children, all of them under the age of three at once, triplets, six months old. Sometimes you talk about Christian service and a person's heart can sink because sometimes we don't think about the daily of our life being Christian service. That light hasn't gone on for us. Everything we do is service to the Lord. Think about the business owner. And here's a business owner who looks and says, Listen, if this sermon is about signing me up to be down at this church four nights a week doing some kind of a something, I just want you to know and running the business that I run, there is no way I can do that. But I can 
run this business, not merely and supremely as a means to put food upon my table, but as a means to glorify Christ. And that's what this business exists for. And we bring forth the best product that we know how to bring forth, the best service that we know how to bring forth, in order that people will realize in coming to con- in contact with this particular company that they're coming into contact with something that's a part of a different kingdom and we're able to speak of Christ to them. Maybe you're in the trades or you have a job over in the Bay Area of whatever, but let's say you are in the trades, hear about Christian service, and your heart can sometimes sink, okay, I'm not serving the Lord, but God has you heading over. You wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to get ahead of, somewhat ahead of the traffic rush. You get back to Modesto to see your family again at 7 p.m., But again, you're doing that not in order to just put food on the table, but that's your Christian service. That's what God has called you to. You've asked Him, what do you want me to do with my life? What's your calling? What's your gifting? And God says, this is what I want you to be doing right now. But you do it in a way that's different from everybody else on the job site. Because when you get up in the morning, what excites you most about going to work isn't the work as exciting as that might be. What excites you is it's another opportunity to take the Christ who lives inside of you into the environment that you're going in today. What open door is God going to give to you in order to share your faith with someone, to model Christ before someone? And that's what excites you. And it's seeing all of life in this way of service that brings meaning to to our lives that we wouldn't other have substance to our life that we wouldn't otherwise know. There's the old story of the man who was walking by a construction site, and as he walked by, there were two bricklayers that were working on separate parts of the building. And he said to the one, what are you doing? He said, I'm laying bricks. He took a few steps down, saw another bricklayer, and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral. There's a world of difference between the two. You can do the same construction job. You can do the same thing in public education. You can do the same thing with computer technology. And it isn't just doing this. I am building the kingdom of God and viewing it that way. Christian service takes a lot of different forms. The main thing is that we know that he has a call upon our lives. We discover what that is, and he will reveal it to us. And then we're busy about that, whatever it is that that might uh, look like. So Paul is telling us here, and it's very significant, that it isn't enough to have the right foundation. That's supreme. But each of us are then to build on that foundation the life that God has called us to. And some Christians live a life of obedience and service to the, to the Lord that is consistent with Jesus, consistent with His nature, consistent with His sacrifice. And so He tells us that they are building a life that's likened to gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, it's God's way of saying, that life is very valuable to me in the building of my kingdom in this world. But then he says there are other Christians that live a life that's completely inconsistent with the life of Jesus. It's self-willed, it's self-directed, it's carnal, it is serviceless, and they are 
the life that they are building is likened here to wood and to hay and to straw, which is fine unless a fire comes. And a fire is coming to, to uh, reveal our service. So when he speaks of those that are uh, their what the, the life that they're building is like into wood and hay and straw. He's saying that their life isn't valuable really at all for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. But I want you to notice further. Paul tells us that not only are we to have the right foundation, and not only is our Christian service to be built upon that foundation, But he tells us also that one day our Christian service is going to be tested. And verse 13 is going to be tested by fire. And just as there are materials like gold and silver and precious stones that can survive a physical fire, there is a Christian service that will survive the spiritual fire that is one day going to come to our service. And that just as there are materials that cannot survive a fire, like wood and hay and stubble, there are certain kind of kinds of Christian service that will not survive that testing by fire. I want you to notice, too, in verse 13, that it's going to occur on the day. Not it's going to occur someday or it's going to occur on a day, but it's going to occur on the day. There is a day when all of this is going to be tested by fire, our services and going to be revealed. And you see the word there in the passage, the word day is capitalized. It's speaking of a specific day because it refers to the day of judgment that's known as the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul refers to this in Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read it to you. He said, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And one of the motives that factored into Paul remaining so strong and faithful in his service to the Lord was this particular fact, that one day he would stand before the Lord and he was going to ultimately give account for his faithfulness to God's call for his life and God's plan for his life. And what was true of the Apostle Paul is also true of every Christian. And every Christian that desires to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, then that every Christian that wants to hear that is going to be concerned about what is God's call upon my life, and then to spend our life being faithful to that call, whatever it is. Now, this Bema seat or this judgment seat of Christ that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter 5, and he's referring to here, it's not talking about the white throne judgment, which is a judgment that those that have rejected Christ are going to stand before. And, and, and to stand before the white throne judgment is ultimately uh, to be then 
cast into an eternal lake of fire to bear the judgment for my own sin since I was unwilling to allow Christ to bear that judgment for me. It's not talking about that here, not talking about eternal judgment. This is talking about the reward seat of Christ. Only Christians will stand before the Lord at the Bema seat of Christ. I love the Olympics. Love to watch them. It's wonderful now that you can just record for hours and watch it for weeks after if you want to. But the Olympics are amazing. One of the things about the Olympics is they have their own form of a Bema seat, a reward seat. And it's those three spots with all varying heights where the top three finishers place. They come in, a medal is put around, around their head, and they wear the gold and they wear the silver and wear the bronze. That's kind of the equivalent of a Bema seat for us today as an example in our, in our culture. You can never watch the Olympics where, you know, you, you see an athlete that is maybe a gymnast or a swimmer or either got all these other sports, kayaking or whatever it is, and you're watching the world's best at this. You're watching excellence. And you're not just watching the three minutes that they're doing their routine or the five minutes that they're doing the swim or whatever it is. You're, we are watching someone and we're impressed by it because we realize that behind these three minutes are literally thousands of hours of hard work and sacrifice and diligence to be in this place to receive this reward. And it's an amazing thing to watch. One of the great things about the Bema Seed of Christ is that there aren't going to be first, second, and third place there. Where they say, all right, we're going to call out the top three Bible teachers in human history. Come up and get your reward. And there they got their medals and all of us got to watch it for the rest of eternity. And they got to deal with their flesh in heaven, which isn't going to happen. Or the top three finishers in terms of the gift of mercy or the gift of administration or any of the various gifts or callings of God in there. The beautiful thing about this is that all we need to do is to be faithful to the thing that God has called us to. And if it isn't as influential or as broadly impacting as somebody else in the world or even somebody else in the church, that's not our problem. That's God's problem. Our situation is just to obey Him and let Him make as much of our life as He chooses to make of our life. But that's the Bema seat. And we're going to stand before the Lord one day related to that, uh, that Bema seat, and we're going to be uh, judged in that way, and we're going to be rewarded or not rewarded in that way. I think we, in verse 13, we also want to notice that our works are going to be tested and revealed, and it's a very interesting phrase that closes out the verse of what sort it is. So there's so much writing on this. This is such a big deal. And so important that when it talks about of what sort it is in terms of the test, I think to myself, what in the world does that mean? Because I want to understand what that means. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that we won't just be judged for the quantity of our work, 
In, the, in other words, we, you know, being faithful to what it is that God has called us to do. But we're also going to be judged for the quality of our work. In other words, the motivation behind the work that we did. There are a lot of motivations in life. And there are a lot of motivations in the body of Christ. A person can be engaged in God's calling upon their life be doing it self-sacrificially, investing mountains of effort and time in it. But Paul is saying, if the motivation is wrong, then it's not going to withstand the testing or the fire that's going to come forward. Some motivations for service are very godly. They're very noble. A love for God, a love for people. These are high motivations. These are motivations that are worthy of the Lord. This is Christian service that's going to be highly rewarded. But then there are a lot of other motives, and boy, they were running rampant in the church at at, uh, Corinth where people were serving uh, the Lord out of motivations that were self-centered and self-serving and self-focused and and combative in all. And so at Corinth, you had all kinds of people who, who were serving, but a lot of them were ministering under the either the influence of the wisdom of man or rather than the wisdom of God. Those that were doing that, Paul said, there's not going to be any reward for that. As we see a little bit, we'll see a little bit later in the letter, some were ministering in Corinth out of, in their calling, out of a motive to be seen by other people. That was their whole motive. They care about God a little bit, don't care that much about people. I'm going to do this because this is where I'm going to be seen. And this is where people, when they see me, they'll think that I'm spiritual by virtue of doing that. And those kind of motives are in there. There's a carnal person still in every single one of us. There won't be when we're in heaven, but now there is. And Paul says there won't be any kind of a reward for that. Some people go into ministry out of a deep-seated desire to be needed. It's all self. It's not about other people. There won't be a reward for that. Some people go into ministry. They serve the Lord because they want to lord it over people. They want power over people, authority over people. Paul says there won't be any reward for that. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read it to you in chapter 6. He said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. That is a problem in religious circles from the beginning of time. And again, it's in every one of us if we don't watch it. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is making the same point that Paul was. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. He said, but when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It is possible to do good deeds for others 
for completely selfish reasons. So that people will take notice of me and they'll think well of me and they'll think highly of me and they'll think of me as spiritual. And that's the real reason. That's the real motive sometimes. That's sure what was going on in Corinth. It wasn't a love for God. It wasn't a concern for other people. But just so that people would see me and notice me. The religious, the religious leaders of the Jews at the time of Jesus, this was the dominant motivation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Everything was in, they, they wouldn't do anything that wasn't public and drew some attention to trying to make people think of them as being more spiritual than they actually were. And there's a certain kind of person who will not do good for others unless they receive recognition for it. That was going on in Corinth and it goes on even today. Think about in the early church in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property and there's a church meeting and and they bring the money, the proceeds from the property. They held part of it back, but they gave the appearance they were giving the whole amount that this the sacrifice represented, a complete sacrifice. They could have kept all the money. God didn't ask them to do anything about that. They, but they brought forth a part, making it appear that it was a whole, and they introduced hypocrisy into that early church. And God smote them both. He judged them both for it. It was a wonderful thing to do, but the motive was all wrong. I remember listening to a story by a pastor many, many years ago in this whole vein of this kind of service. I'd love to give you illustrations from our own history here, but I can't do it. And so I've got to use somebody else's illustrations. I don't know why I give God praise. I give Him glory. 28 years in this fellowship and all, we just haven't dealt with this kind of thing. God has dealt with it in the privacy of our own hearts, but this has not been not only not a dominant thing of people going and serving the Lord in order to get attention and to be seen and all this kind of stuff. It just hasn't been an issue for us. And that's just because the Holy Spirit has just done his thing, you know. It's no credit to anybody else, but we're thankful for that. So I use the illustration, true story, of a pastor who went to another church and began pastoring this new church, and it was an existing church. The pastor had left that, and so he stepped into that scene. And there are certain challenges to coming into something that's already started and moving in a certain direction, and uh, just as there are challenges to the Lord using someone to start something and, and from scratch and where it begins. So he came into this church and he came in the first Sunday morning and as he was coming up to the pulpit in order to preach the message, he noticed there was a beautiful floral display in front of the pulpit and he noticed it and, uh, but didn't acknowledge it, it at all and delivered his sermon and went on about his business. And the second Sunday, a new set of flowers were there, this beautiful floral arrangement. He didn't acknowledge it, pointed everybody to God in the service, not to the flowers, went on about his business. And then at the end of that second service, a group of deacons caught him and told him, listen, Pastor, 
If you want those flowers to continue to appear every week, you better acknowledge sister so-and-so by name as the source of those flowers. Now, how ugly is that? That's what was going on at Corinth, not just by sister so-and-so. That was the dominant tone of Corinth. It was about as ugly as it gets. And then sure enough, the third, he ignored all of it. The third Sunday, there were no flowers because she wasn't doing it for God and she wasn't doing it for other people. She was doing it for self-recognition, for selfish reasons. It was a good thing, but it was marred and ruined by the wrong motive. So there needs to be the right foundation. There needs to be Christian service, but it also needs to be done out of a proper motivation in order for it to be rewarded in the way that God wants to reward it, because only in that way is it glorifying to the Lord. And so much church that was going, so much service that was going on in the church at Corinth was being done in this same way, self-serving reasons. And Paul, someone needed to tell them, and Paul was the man to do that, to step up and tell them that there will be no reward for that that it isn't just the quantity of ministry that's important to God, but the quality of ministry as well. It needs to be done out of a motive of a love for God and a love for people. As Paul will write later in this very same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, wow, 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 what kind of a reward is that going to be? It's going to be amazing. It's going to be gigantic. It'll be one of the biggest crowns in heaven. No, that's not what he says. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing, no reward. That's heavy. And Paul comes in and he's telling this church at a point here we listen to it in a church today where if this is, a, if this is in the church, it's at the periphery. This is being read to a church where this is the warp and woof. It's in, this is the fabric of their being of this church. And they needed somebody to stand up and tell them this so they wouldn't be surprised by it when ultimately they did stand before Christ. They say there's an old saying related to lots of things, but sometimes concerning Bible teaching and sometimes people will look and say, well, you know, this Bi- the Bible teaching is so weak or it's so watered down that if it were uh, medicine, it couldn't heal anyone. If it were poison, it couldn't kill anyone. And here's the Apostle Paul in a great love for this congregation at Corinth, and he steps up and he tells them some really hard things for them to hear, but things that they need to hear. And the same thing happens can happen in our lives today where the light can go on. What in the world? This isn't just me about me getting saved and going into heaven and enjoying the celebration. But there's more to this Christian life. There's an other-centered side of this Christian life that service is important, that motives are important. And it's good for us to hear. It's good for me to hear. Notice, too, that this judgment is going to be individual. It's repeated twice in in the verse 13, each one, each one. 
and that this test by fire of our motives is going to produce two results. What survives the fire is going to be rewarded, and then if everything in my life or my service is wood, hay, and stubble, then it's all going to be burned up. I'll get into heaven, no doubt about that, but again, I'll smell like smoke or I won't have any real reward uh, once I get in there. And that's, that's what Corinth was headed toward and what Paul was trying to warn them away from. And I think it's very important to realize that this is not speaking of our salvation. This has to do with Christian service. So he's talking about the Bema seat, the reward seat of Christ. Only Christians will be before that judgment. So the eternity isn't hanging in, in, in the balance. Our presence in heaven is guaranteed by our faith in Christ. But our position in heaven is determined by our faithfulness to God's call upon our lives and his gifting today. Now let me head to my second point. And just so some of you aren't alarmed, I am aware of the time, but when have I ever cared about that? I'm just kidding. I'm always, I'm not cavalier about it. I am aware of the time. And, um, but I make the final two points briefly because they've already been made uh, multiple times in, in, uh, in Paul's letter already. But number two, a life built upon the foundation of Jesus will not defile or do damage to a local church or the body of Christ as a whole. You notice that when he talks about this in verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God, and we know we're the temple of God as Christians, God will destroy him. Sometimes you can read that as a Christian and go, oh, no, I'm, con- you know, I, I sinned, and so God's going to destroy me. When he talks about the temple of God in verse 17, he's talking about the local church. He's talking about the church at Corinth. That's what, that's, that's what he's uh, referring to. And Paul is warning these very divisive, carnal, self-seeking people in the church at Corinth who are doing great damage to that church. They better stop or God's going to destroy them or God's going to judge them. And that's very, very sobering. It's a heavy thing. And that includes what he's talked about already, whether it's leaders who are damaging the church by substituting God's man's methods and motives and foundations and wisdom for God's wisdom and for God's ways, or it can refer to leaders or members of the congregation who want to make the church like everything else in the world around us about man rather than about God. And God says, if you do that, you'll get my attention and I'll judge you. Or Christians who just bring division and conflict to the local church and they don't even think twice about it. They've never read verse 17, and if they have, they haven't taken it seriously. But heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will never, ever pass away. The local church is a precious thing in the eyes of God. It's a precious thing to me. I am so thankful I have a church to go to that God has planted my heart in. You say, well, you're the pastor. I'm the pastor, but this is the church I attend. 
This is where I'm growing in my relationship with the Lord. This is where I get pointed to God. This is, this is where what church is supposed to happen in a human life happens for me. And it's important to realize if a person is divisive in this way, to realize that for many, many Christians, the only healthy relationships they have in their life are in the church that they attend. The only stable place in their life, apart from their personal relationship with the Lord, the only stable place in their life is their local church. Their world, their health, their job, their family, everything's fragmented, everything's going in a hundred different directions, and they can do all right and all of that as long as they know that their church is okay for them to come to and to worship the Lord and to receive from the Lord in that place. It is a big thing to destroy or to bring division into a local church out of my carnality. And it is always an indication. Anyone who does that kind of thing has no deep understanding of what a local church means to the spiritual people who attend there. And it's a good warning for us individually in a church like our church here, you know, not to slander, not to gossip. We're not dealing with it. We don't, we're not dealing with that as a problem here. That's not the issue. But just to be aware of that. I've, I greatly dislike, I've talked about it a number of weeks ago, but I don't like what this discernment ministries, so-called discernment ministries, I don't know that they discern the body of Christ what the body of Christ means to God and the damage they do to find every single little flaw and every single little church or person as if they're going to find perfection in someone or something other than Christ, this side of heaven, and then to put a blog or a website together and destroy people. They never read verse 17. They never read how Jesus views that kind of thing being done out of arrogance and out of pride and carnality just because it isn't like me. And I think it's scary how some Christians really, they think nothing of just bringing constant division and conflict to a church that they attend and they live like this warning doesn't even exist A local church belongs to God, and it's a big thing to bring unhealth to it, to divide it, to split it over my own carnality. And then third, in verses 21 through 23, a life built upon the foundation of Christ will not identify solely with one part of the body of Christ, but instead with all And Paul's basically saying to these Corinthian Christians, why are you devoting yourself exclusively to some small splinter of Christianity when all of it is yours? The Assembly of God Church is yours. 
The Pentecostal church is yours. The Baptist church is yours. The denominational church is yours. The non-denominational church is yours. It belongs to your heavenly Father. It is all yours. Why would I seek to only identify with one section of the body of Christ and show any hostility toward the rest of the body of Christ or consider myself superior to it when Jesus identifies with the whole body of Christ? It's not to build on the foundation. It's to build on a foundation that comes from the world and comes from the flesh. And I'll tell you, I am so glad that we are able to identify with the whole body of Christ. I learn from men and women in virtually every denomination, in every background, The world has become so small through technology. I can listen to sermons or be impacted by the influence of Christian men and women all around the world. comes right into my home. I have access to it. I don't have to identify with one portion. It's all mine, and I'm blessed by it, and we're all blessed by it. Jesus, again, he doesn't identify with one part of the body of Christ, but with all of it, and so should we. So Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, it's a corrective epistle, and it's like exhortation, 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 exhortation. If you sit here today and you say, boy, I just needed a hug, and someone to tell me it was going to be, everything was going to be okay. And I got this. Well, hunker down. There's about 13 more chapters of this. But that's why there's pastors and other men and women up in front after the service in order to come and say, hey, this is my need. This is what I need. What does the Bible say to me about this? Or would you just pray for me? Or this is why tonight we're going into a new book. We finished up the Psalms heading into Proverbs. So we'll come into another section of the Word of God that will deal with our Christian life in a different way and all. But the correction is needed because the culture was so strong around Corinth. That's why Corinth was the way that it was. And the culture is so strong around us. And we really do need to know these things and be reminded of these things even if we know these things so that the culture does not take over. The only thing we really have responsibility for in the world and that is this little tiny thing called Calvary Chapel of Modesto and our place in it and our place in God's kingdom and His influence in this world. And so a life that is built upon the foundation of Christ will be a life of service. It's important to know that. It will not defile the temple of God. It will not destroy or do harm the body of Christ. And number three, it will not identify solely with one part of the body of Christ, but instead with all of it important words to have tucked away in our Christian life. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Thank you, Lord, for this passage. Thank you for all that it communicates. We don't consider ourselves intrinsically better than a single saint in Corinth. We're capable of all that they did and worse. But we're thankful that you took and gave us a record of what they needed to hear, Lord, so that we could be corrected in our own hearts and so that we could avoid wasting our lives or taking this little church called Calvary Chapel in Modesto and bringing it under our own control and destroying it, moving it from its foundation. And for that, we're thankful, Lord. We just pray that wherever this passage hit in each one of our lives, whatever it affirmed and encouraged us in, Lord, that that work would continue in our lives, wherever it exposed need or wherever it corrected, Lord, that as we leave this place, that that would do, it would continue to do its full work in that area as well. We think it's the last days, Lord. We certainly want to live like that. And all we want is the city of Modesto and beyond, along with other churches, to just see the real thing in this church and the real thing in our life. And we thank you, Lord, for the place that this passage plays in all of that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.